0: Welcome to who knows real estate episode 20 infill multifamily development. I'm Kevin.
1: And I'm Jim. And today our guest Dave Satrina from PVC design build shares his story of how he went from buying single family houses to building 30 and 40 unit apartment complexes in infill lots. It's a must listen. On today's episode, we have Dave Ciotrino, who is the founder of PBC Design Build out of Wilmington, North Carolina. He builds a lot of fantastic homes in the Wilmington area and then is also a developer in multifamily. Dave, thanks for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Would you mind giving our listeners a little bit of background about how you got into real estate?
2: Sure. I think uh, like a lot of investors, um, I knew that I needed to be in real estate. I knew that that's where a path for somebody who didn't have generational wealth or I didn't invent anything. It seemed like the, at least the, the most logical way someone from a you know a, a centered middle-class household had any ability to create some long-term financial security. Um, and I was uh, the, the kind of one of the ways of getting into real estate was I became a real estate agent when I was 18. Um, I was uh, really in love with this girl named Jenny and she was having nothing to do with me, but her father, Mr. Wilson said, listen, you, you're slick and transparent, just like the tires on your car, but I think you would do really well in real estate. So he offered, uh, I was a freshman in college, he offered to pay for my uh, community college classes and it was four hours every Monday night for a semester. And, uh, and then he set me up for some some additional help with the testing. And uh, I, as a, a graduating freshman or finishing freshman, rising sophomore, I spent a summer as a real estate agent at the age of 18. Uh, I had a Toyota Corolla and I would hustle my mom to let me borrow her Cadillac so I could take people around and show her houses. And after a summer of working the worst shifts uh, that nobody wanted, usually Monday nights at between 7 and 9 at the the help desk or the phone desk, and this is all pre-internet days, I realized that I still really, really liked real estate, but I probably wasn't well suited to be a, a realtor. Um, I really struggled with clients who would tell me exactly what they wanted and, and describe in great detail what they wanted. And then I would show it to them. And then I would be shocked when they would say, well, what else do you have to show me? And I thought to myself, wait a minute, I just showed you the very best of the entire area. What, what What's wrong with you? So um, I would unpack my my mom's Cadillac, uh, get the cooler and all the stuff I had put in there. And after a couple of ventures like that, I. Um, I shifted gears. And by the time I was a senior in college, I had uh, convinced my parents to purchase a, a home for me to rent back from them and lease out uh, as I finished college. And then um, I purchased with a partner, uh, an older gentleman who was 10 years my senior, but he was a police officer uh, in our town. He um, uh, he knew all, all the deals. He knew whose mama had passed away and three siblings fighting over a house and they all just wanted the cash. And so uh, we figured out how to navigate at that time were properties that were probably in the, you know, in the, um, 35 to $55,000, something we could rent for about $500 a month and around that area.
1: That's awesome. So you actually started, I mean, obviously as the real estate broker side, but actually buying individual houses to rent Is that right?
2: Yeah. So I don't really count the one that I talked my parents into buying uh, as a, I think I was like a sophomore or junior at the time, but, um, that was something where I just as a realtor and someone looking at real estate. And again, this is pre-internet. So it was getting the MLS books or the, the, you know, driving around. But I remember, you know, explaining to my parents, look, this is something where I think I can justify and pay for itself. And again, I'm I'm not coming from knowledge that I have now I'm coming from how do you get started? I mean, you know, $10,000 might've been $10 million. I mean, it's still, I didn't know anyone worth four figures, let alone five figures. So how, how do you even get going? But that was kind of the first entree, as putting that deal together, using my parents, you know, and and their creditworthiness and justification, since my brother was also going to the same college. But it wasn't until uh, a couple years later when um, I, you know, I met somebody who kind of gave me the confidence and some of the knowledge um, they had. I had a decent construction background. My summers were spent mainly in carpentry and in construction, but I still didn't have a complete knowledge of how do you replace a hot water heater? Um, not a really hard thing to do, but if you've never done it, it it sounds pretty foreign. So it really started very organically. Um, the building piece and how I make my salary comes from me building homes for people, but there was no wealth generation there. Uh, Even my happiest client who loves their home, they refuse to pay me every year for the rest of their lives, (laughs) some residual income for, for building that home. So what, um, what we were able to do with some excess cap um, uh, to, you know, time on our hands, you know, we, we've got capacity and a few dollars and we could build for ourselves. We started building small uh, infill homes, infill areas where the home sites were relatively inexpensive, the locations were, um, you know, in, in emerging or transitional areas. And we started with single family and duplex. And um, and that was kind of our our entree truly one mm-hmm. at a time I see the guys who are doing, um, you know, numerous, you know, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna get to 100 homes in a year. And I, I get so overwhelmed just thinking about that guy trying to do that. It's a lot of work for me being able to keep my day job, focusing on the core business, but being able to have a side hustle that included uh, adding, you know, two and then four and then averaging about 10 units a year for a while was very manageable and it was something that wasn't requiring me to over leverage myself or distract myself from being able to feed myself and my family yeah
1: can you talk a little bit more about that model on building you know the singles and the duplexes uh, building them to rent on how you looked at how much to invest into a property how you financed it and what you kind of looked for in rents to green light a project
2: yeah i think um you know thinking of my first couple of years in this business and as, as looking back to people who, who are also interested in kind of replicating what worked for me. You know, they, they necessarily didn't have the resources or a rich relative or somebody who could who could uh, provide some financial injection. You know, I looked at a lot of deals and it was really, um, it was practically a full-time job I, because one, I didn't want to make a mistake. I didn't have the money to make a mistake. I mean, right now, if I make a mistake, a little bit of money, you know, uh, the world doesn't end. But, you know, the difference between um, forecasting a rental income of $1,000 a month and receiving actually eight hundred dollars a month. You know, that two hundred dollar a month delta yeah. uh, is a big deal when you're when you really can't absorb that kind of a loss. But I think those first couple of years, we spent a lot of time, or I spent a lot of time, just trying to figure out. What really works, and I think in hindsight, you know the, there's some 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 consistencies, but with single family and duplex, you know I, I was able to use something as simple as the one percent rule, especially when buying existing homes. If the house would rent for nine hundred dollars a month, I knew that I needed to probably be all in around ninety thousand or hundred thousand dollars a month that that nine hundred dollars a month equated to one percent of the of the purchase price. Yeah, you know, that doesn't always work right now at the time. My interest rates were you know between seven and eight percent. It's a little bit easier right now when rates are, I mean, rates are mispriced. Uh, Anyone who's not taking advantage of the current rates and fixing those rates is missing an opportunity within reason. So in in our case, or at least in my case, I was looking at uh, how much money can I afford to put down? Um, How can I add value through construction or doing the work myself? And then how much am I borrowing so that maybe I'm basically break even on my out-of-pocket costs, but I'm not collecting any money? Um, certainly no income uh, initially on, on that acquisition. And um, and that was really, you know, again, there was a time where I think the first year we built two duplexes, which took everything in my power, but like a lot of things, everything is is hard before it's easy. And by the time we were doing eight duplexes a year, it was like, huh, you know, I'm, I'm the duplex king. I, I'm celebrating, um, you know, myself because I had not only dialed in a really strong floor plan and something that was efficient to build. But it was also something that was desirable to our audience. Our client, our renter, our resident uh, went and walked in and said, man, for, for $900 a month, this is really nice. This really lives well. And not only were we able to capture that resident, but we were able to retain that resident. And in some cases, I have residents who have lived in homes for us for more than a decade now. And that's a real testament to not only uh, the work we did up front, But uh, as a a person who has a couple hundred rental properties, turnover will kill you. And so if you can give somebody a good quality product, provide them a safe, clean, affordable space, Uh, some people are perfectly content with renting. It's not for me, but not uh, what I do isn't right for everybody else. And I think recognizing that in your client really can be the success of a long-term rental portfolio.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to talk more about your Infill multifamily stuff, but just staying on this for a minute is what point did you start transitioning from buying existing older homes as rentals to then building. What did that transition look like um, when and why
2: Yeah, I think um, I completely underestimated how much maintenance would cost on an older home and um and I'm I'm actually setting aside the historic piece. The historic homes are really, really tough. You have to really buy them correctly. But the reason we, we converted from buying a home that might have been 20 or 30 years old and updating it, and there's nothing wrong with that, but in our area and with the abundance of vacant land, especially abundant land that was in decent locations and our ability to build new, I was going from potentially on average uh, $100 a month in maintenance costs, whether that was a hot water heater or replacement of a roof or... Uh, An HVAC system. I mean, big, large capital expenses. I didn't really have the money to do that. I I couldn't Mm -hmm. afford the maintenance. Um, You know, I have projects that were paying, uh, paying the debt service down just fine. And, but they weren't really kicking off much money. I wasn't looking to live off of these properties. Uh, So having these kind of one time hits were really a kick in in the, you know, in in the, in the financial modeling of it. So the, the transition to really new construction was twofold. One, we could build for ourselves. Uh, we had the capital, the resources, the capacity to do that. We had the credit lines or, or the, um, you know, the relationships with vendors and subs. Um, we could do it at our own pace, but I was getting a finished new product and I wasn't uh, burdening myself with what I might've spent more. New construction was going to be more expensive than rehabbing existing, but that new construction, having that new construction meant I truly had no maintenance costs. I mean, the soonest I was replacing a hot water heater was year eight. The soonest I needed a new HVA system was year 12. The soonest I was going to need a new roof was year 25. So having all these set-aside reserves or having to set aside these, these, you know, it wasn't even nickel and dime. It it was not uncommon to have a repair on a home that might have only been 30 years old, but that home, unless you replaced everything, Something was going to go wrong. It could have been a plumbing issue. It could have been a wiring issue. It could have been, you know, fogged up windows or, or some kind of leak. Any of those things I, I didn't have to worry about if I was building new.
0: Yeah, I don't think you can overestimate uh, how much easier it is to maintain the new property versus the older ones. I mean, guys that are in it with older properties, if they're honest with you, they'll tell you there's really no money to be made at the end of the year outside of depreciation because all the maintenance can- pretty much eats up all your cash flow. And I completely agree with that.
2: I think that's where um, I really learned quickly that I I wanted to create wealth. I wasn't looking to live off these properties, but what I wasn't comfortable with is the uh, unpredictability is you didn't know what was going to break down. And and it only breaks down at the most inconvenient time. And if you're the Mm -hmm. property manager, you're the guy going over on July 4th weekend to see if you can troubleshoot it before you call somebody else. Um, or you know, it's, it's the toilet that gets clogged up. And it's, it's, of course, it's on Christmas morning when the toilet gets clogged up. So I think having the ability, the, the luxury of being able to remove those unknowns from the equation, or at least limit them, because I am a, a sole proprietor, I, I wasn't relying on a bunch of third parties, at least not in the early years before I had property management in place where somebody else was fielding those calls and they were solving those problems. But Life's much easier when I'm starting with something that is kind of clean and fresh and, and at least um, uh, you know, even on the day, the first day you finish that house, it never gets better. It's only going to be uh, atrophying. And, um, but it's still for, for us, it made a lot of sense. And, and we're still doing that with our multifamily product.
0: I'm curious. Um, you talked about you know, coming up with your own floor plan and using that for your rentals, and I'm sure you're at an advantage being a home builder as well to, to what the needs and wants of, of most folks were. Has that layout and your rentals, have those evolved? I'm sure they have evolved over time, but can you kind of walk us through how, how your rental uh, floor plans maybe have evolved and, and, and what, you, what you like to focus on?
2: Yeah, and let me make sure I, I'm not advocating that every situation requires us to build new. Um, it's just part of our business model because we're a builder, because this is something we're comfortable with and because I enjoy it on a Saturday morning. You know, I don't get to watch cartoons anymore. They don't have cartoons. So I have to get up, eat my bowl of cereal, grab my Starbucks, and then I like going checking on my jobs. And Saturday mornings is a good way to do that. Nobody's there or it's quiet. And and it's part of the it's no different than the guy that plays golf on a Saturday morning. I, I just happen to enjoy the housing. But I think part of the, the enjoyment for me too was you know, I'm limited to some constraints. Uh, in a lot in our area, specifically in Wilmington, our historic district, home sites are all divisible by three. So if you have a home site, it's 33 feet wide, and it's 66 feet long, or 99 feet long, or 165 feet long. And so I had to design chassis, if you will, that provided for off-street parking, that met the setbacks, that met the street frontage. So a lot of the design we came up with was first, fitting it in the footprint. And then second, how do you make that footprint very livable? And when you're dealing with a duplex, how do you manage not just natural light, but sound, uh, access, privacy—all all those things kind of came into play. I drive by my first duplex uh, still, you know, all the time because it's right around the corner from our offices. I, I I see it once a week and I I can't look at it because it was—I mean, it was a 1997 model. It's it's like looking at your you know your middle school photos with braces and glasses. You're like, oh my god, who is that guy? You know, I don't look like anything like that guy anymore. But I see that duplex and I'm like, what idiot? You know, let that guy do that roof line and and look at all that this and that and he should have done windows here and. That was a terrible idea, and it was also really expensive. Our first duplex was our most expensive. So when I look at the duplexes now, I don't really have a lot to add, mainly because you know it's version 12.0 of of a decade of. And I think that's something. Again, while I, I'm I'm a financial security guy, I like the financial independence and the financial security that real estate affords me. I still like improving upon a product or. or, or there's a personal. Again, just like the golfer, you know, beating my score from last week by just one stroke feels amazing. And if I can build a duplex that is slightly less money or it's the same money, but lives slightly better, uh, has slightly more storage, is slightly quieter, I feel like I'm gaining on myself.
1: I like how you continuously improve your floor plans and your building style for rentals. Were there any like major breakthroughs that you can think of specifically that our listeners might be like, oh man, we should do that
2: on our next one? Well, one thing that's been interesting, we're seeing a lot of movement in the multifamily market. I'm talking to multifamily buyers who are now looking at Wilmington. It's still a tertiary market, but they're from all over the country, especially the East Coast. I am fielding calls. I'm meeting Uh, professionals who are acquiring, uh, in some cases, aggressively acquiring multifamily. And what's interesting is, you know, our business model was never, like a lot of apartment builders, it's, we're going to build this apartment, we're going to stabilize this apartment, we're going to have, you know, two years of of, um, uh, financials for this apartment, and then we're going to sell it to a REIT. And that is a perfectly... Uh, very profitable, um, very difficult, but very profitable business model. And ours never was that, you know, we were never looking at going, okay, we're going to build this and we're going to sell it. And of course, mm. at some point you think you're going to sell it, but initially your, your guidance is I'm going to design a strong plan, but I'm also going to design something that is extremely easy to maintain, very durable, because again, like we were talking about before with the duplexes, I'm not selling this in two or three years. I, I'm acting as if I'm going to own it forever. So we are doing things with regard to, um, you know, just design with uh, how we manage storms and water intrusion, how we manage HVAC, um, all of these different, how we, the interchangeability. um, When one thing breaks, can I grab something else and put it over here? I mean, we use the same sink faucet for the last seven years. Um, So, you know, there's no question as to, um, you know, if something goes bad over here can i can I fix it with something over here and and some of that some of that um doesn't mean that the homes homes are they feel boring or they feel outdated. It means that there's some consistency both in how we manage and protect that property, but also our our client when our audience when they kind of come into that space, they can't put their finger on it, but they say things like I don't know what it is, but this place just feels larger than 500 square feet. And it, and it does because we have some tricks and things that we've done through a design because of our experience building for other people. Being able to kind of bring that in and put it put put it forward, we um, were able to, to really uh, get more from our spaces just because we're using high design and details that don't cost more, but just take a little bit more thought up front.
1: Mm. Can you talk about your... Um, transition into building multifamily infill sites.
2: Yeah, I think um, you know the multifamily. Let's let's describe multifamily really as anything yeah. more than four units. Um, you know, we uh, we haven't built a duplex, and it's kind of bittersweet. I mean, I haven't built a duplex in in almost a decade. At least not for rent or for our own portfolio. The duplexes we've done have been more for sale as a townhome or condominium, um, because the highest, and best use for those was to sell it and not to retain it we've been easing out of the duplexes and single families and then, and then repurposing those dollars or that, that appreciation into our multifamily. And a lot of that is from uh, a management piece. Um, mm-hmm. It takes just as long to manage 10 scattered duplexes uh, as it does one 20-unit uh, um, project. So we, uh, we started easing into uh, multifamily really by acquiring and, and completely rehabbing a 12-unit product and then a 24-unit product before we were at the point where we could justify uh, the new construction of a uh, 35, 36-unit apartment project. And new construction is more expensive, uh, at least in our market, ground up for uh, apartments than it would be, especially in infill where you're only doing 36. It is more expensive than kind of rehabbing, it, or at least it was for us, depending on what we're buying things for. But as I said earlier with the duplexes, what we weren't burdened by was the um, the maintenance or the repairs. I mean, even though we did complete rehabs of the 12 unit product and the 24 unit product, they're still in some cases, you know, 30 and 40 and 50 year old buildings. And they have some deficiencies that, you know, no amount of paint and repairs and updates are gonna be able to overcome. I'm still not a big fan of eight foot ceilings. I'm, you know The windows are the windows. You're not gonna add more windows. So uh, one of the apartments has has two windows. and. and and, and anything we're building now, that same apartment would have you know, 300% more glazing uh, for that same space. Mm-hmm. So the, the transition to apartments really came down to, um, one, finding the land in a location that we thought we could add value to. And a lot of the times that was near existing product or existing uh, areas that we were already investing in. And then two, it was trying to figure out... What the market needed, or what was missing in the market, and then how to to deliver that. And in our case, to deliver it without any amenities. Uh, on these smaller infill sites, they're not going to have a Olympic-sized swimming pool. They're not going to have a cabana and beach bar. There's not enough room for the coffee bar and the and the guest lounges and the, and the conference centers and and the uh, and and the uh, entertainment venue, you know, which is very desirable for some people. Our demographic is saying, Hey, I just need some place that I can afford it needs to be clean, it needs to be safe, it needs to be convenient. I don't need a fire pit, I don't need new friends, I don't even like the friends I got. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, give me someplace I can just be and sleep that uh, that meets my needs and make it easy on me. Make it yeah. easy on me so that when I walk in the door, I just have to sign my name to a lease, maybe hook up the electricity, but the Wi-Fi works as soon as I walk in, water, sewer, trash already taken care of, Bundling some of those things became the amenity for some of our clients, not having to run around town setting up, you know, three different security deposits and four different accounts just to get kind of moved in. Um, our our client, our demographic, they get a job. They have they have to work. They they don't need this. is not necessarily the luxury apartment for them. And there's nothing wrong with the luxury apartment. It just didn't fit our business model either. In who we felt we would be uh, attuned to, or who we thought would always be available. There are lots of people who can afford, um, a $1,500 a month apartment, but there's a, a million people who can afford a $900 a month apartment. I mean, there, there's the, um, even the person who feels really secure in their position, if, if they're not sure what the economy is doing, spending a little less on housing, but still having the things that they need was important to them.
1: How did you, so for people not familiar with Wilmington, how do you identify neighborhoods or parts of Wilmington, that would be a good place to build these, you know, 20, 30, 40 unit apartments. Like what kind of characteristics did they have?
2: Well, I think what we looked at and, and one of the books that I'm a big fan of, um, it's called The Missing Middle. And it really talks about urban infill development. And it looks at the difference between what is mostly, uh, and really since the sixties and seventies, uh, most communities, you know, Charlotte or go anywhere, It's mainly single-family development. It's the easiest thing to buy. Everybody needs a house. Single-family, though, also eats up a lot of land. It requires vehicles in a lot of places, and and it's hard to kind of use as an infill kind of development. So when we look at areas that have most appealed to us, it's part of the existing grid pattern. uh, Areas kind of in the downtown in the numbered streets type of thing, and the reason that has been so attractive to us is one it's familiar, but two it's something that we also see our community, our municipality, the city planners really want to see those areas that are that are currently really overlooked uh those areas already have roads, they already have sidewalks there's already water and sewer and trees and, and all kind of existing on in those spaces and and so in our case, being able to grab uh, and and redevelop those areas, remove if they're difficult, but they remove some unpredictability with regard to um, costs. I mean, if you look at apartment projects, you know, no guy goes out and builds a 16 unit apartment project on 10 acres. He goes out and he builds 288 apartments in that area because he can, you know, he's going to all the same effort to build the 16 that he is to do the 288. So in our case, um, the smaller projects are harder because you have to have uh reviews and approvals and and you have to manage stormwater. But at the same time, you get um you get a little bit more support from uh the the agencies that are approving these projects because they really do want to see this development that isn't car reliant. Uh where we're building now pretty much every project we're doing, you're you're three or four blocks, you're a quarter mile to a store. Uh, to a grocery store, to a restaurant, to, to a bar, to the dry cleaner, to the Chinese takeout. So while not every client is, uh, every client still has a car in most cases, the idea that they could ride their bike somewhere or they could walk somewhere, uh, that that person is, is willing to forego the swimming pool and the and the, the dog run and the concierge service yeah. in return for something they can afford and in something that's kind of closer to, and also their their eco, their eco footprint is reduced somewhat because they're not driving 30 minutes out of town to live in a nice big apartment complex that does meet their budget, but it's requiring them to commute one hour a day. And that that one hour is, is valuable in other ways.
1: Yeah, that proximity to stuff people want to do, entertainment, restaurants, everything is very important. Can you talk about like that 36 unit you're building? I think there's a lot of stuff that's really unique about it, whether it's like the footprint of the land, the building, the kind of bedroom count of the units you're building. Can you talk a little bit more about that? To share what's unique
2: yeah i think one thing that was if you would you asked me even five years ago that i'd be building majority one bedroom and studio apartments i'd be like well that's crazy you're eliminating all kinds of people you know you're eliminating people who need two bedrooms or an office or three bedrooms or families but we were seeing something interesting um in our, our local area where there were a lot of people who you know they were limited on what they could spend and to stay in their budget it required them to have a roommate and i think um while a one-bedroom home costs more to build on per square foot than a two-bedroom. Uh, I mean, the kitchen's the most expensive part of, of, a, of a house. So, every house has a kitchen, but not every house has four bedrooms. And the bedroom's a really inexpensive place. Um, so, you know if you're looking to monetize uh, as a rental, a single-family home, going from three-bedroom to four-bedroom new construction is totally worth the money. You, you'll get the money back uh, tenfold. But with the apartments, what we saw is there was a demographic of people who just said, listen, I'm a 45-year-old guy. I don't want to buy an apartment. Or I, I, After the last recession, it's not appealing to me. I don't want a roommate. I just need, I'm a minimalist. I've shedded a bunch of stuff. I've given my kids these things. I just need a place that I can live. So we started building very livable one-bedroom spaces. And, and they are. Um, you know, We joke that it's, it's the, you know, with the minimalist in mind. But when, our, when our, our consumer, when our buyer, when our audience comes through, they see really really well done spaces. So the 36 unit project that we did downtown, uh, the recently uh, recently completed, it is essentially 36 one bedroom apartments and it filled up really quickly. Some of it was just market timing, some of it was just general demand, but a lot of it was somebody's looking at this going, let me get this straight. I'm getting water, sewer, trash, Wi-Fi, cable and it really, you know, lock and go type of living in a new well-located, convenient, and a space that feels really good. And I'm paying about, I don't know, all in $900 to $1,000 a month. For new construction, first generation, that's really good. Now, it doesn't necessarily qualify as affordable housing or workforce housing, but for most people, and we look at our demographic there, a lot of it was just professional people who had moved to Wilmington, didn't really even know anybody anyway, and it fit their needs with regard to proximity to where they were working and also, they saw themselves on the weekend riding their bike or walking to places downtown. And it was easy to do that from this location.
1: That's awesome. Um, go ahead, Gavin.
0: No, uh, I love this topic. And one thing that we didn't really touch on is you mentioned, you know, you're not concerned with selling it in two years. You are kind of building it to, to keep you even mentioned, you know, this, you're trying to build wealth, um, um as opposed to, you know, the, the short gains. So I guess what my question is, is what do you focus on um on the on the financing side as far as getting your financing um are you are you trying to kick off a huge cash flow or are you trying to make sure that these are paying themselves off in a quick manner like what do you do you focus on any one thing in that regard yeah well uh, it's a, that's a great question because it's i'm really fortunate in that my
2: day job provides me with a completely stable and fine income and, and i'm not uh i've always been kind of a, a delayed gratification type of person anyway i mean i read books that kind of harped on the sacrifice now for future gains later approach although now at 50 i'm recognizing that this is kind of the future and um, you know that it's okay to, to to spend some of that money but i i'm like warren buffett i, I like the compounding of the interest and you know, so when I'm doing these projects, the bank, of course, wants to see, you know, what is this going to be worth? What's it going to praise for? What's the valuation going to be? How much cash is it kicking off? Um, and the money that's coming off the properties we've been doing, you know, you can only do three things with cash. You can spend it, you can save it, or you can pay down debt. And right now, even with low interest rates, we've been very careful about what we, what we have as, as debt. Um, you know, the ability to have extra cash, uh, we set aside reserves. So I'm not getting cash called or having to nickel and dime myself when i do need to repair at year eight or ten because with 36 apartments you're not repairing you know one you're repairing 36 so you better have the money to swap out the appliances at, you know all at one time unlike a, a single family home so you've got to be a little bit more careful about making sure that you're setting aside some cash because A lot of apartment guys, and and again, it's a business model that works for lots of people, just at this time in my life, it's not. As you own this property and at year seven or eight, it's appreciated in value. The incomes have risen. You've paid down quite a bit of debt. A lot of guys will go because tax-free, essentially, they can go and recast that debt, cash out, put some money in their pockets, do some updates, and then just keep that turning. And again, that is a perfectly acceptable, I am not even going to talk that that's it's just not for me. It's not what I'm doing, at least not right now. Uh, Right now, I don't need the cash from these properties. I'm not a a consumer who's spending a lot of money and and need to cash out of these properties. Um, I will at some point, but right now, um, being able to create some great spaces, uh, monetize and stabilize those spaces, and then put them on cruise control is really the joy that I'm, I'm getting from these properties right now. Um, and the fact that they're kicking off some cash is great. That cash is ordinary income. So I'm making sure that that cash gets redeployed in a way that either um, helps offset some tax hits or gets reinvested in the entity so that uh, my business partner who is 10 years my junior, you know, he has kind of the same luxury benefits that I have so that when he is looking for income beyond um, his day job, because that day job will, will go away at some point but that income is stable and it's consistent.
1: Are you guys financing uh, the construction side? Are you paying cash and then refining later? No, yeah. Um,
2: We're borrowing money. uh, And what we're doing in a lot of these is we're borrowing. I've been kind of more thoughtful in trying to uh, use our local banks and our local lenders who know us. They're a little bit more generous in letting us kind of put our our fees in as equity, our development fees and equity. So while we're putting Mm. some money into these projects, and I'll give you an example. uh, We've got a project that's a $3.5 million project. It should require somewhere between... $500,000 $500,000 and 600000 of equity. Uh, we're probably borrowing $2.5 million on, on these projects. And so some of that equity is just, hey, we sold these duplexes, we sold these houses, that cash can go into it. Or we already own the land free and clear, which is usually the case. We've already paid for that land. We own that land free and clear. We've paid for the plans and the drawings and the, the upfront costs up front. So, so before we even show up, we've already got the land in. We've got a, the architect and engineering fees in. We, we really only borrowing money to cover our out-of-pocket costs because we're also putting in our contractor fee, our development fees in. And because there's not a lot of layers in this, I don't have a lot of consultants, I don't have a real estate agent, I don't have uh, you know, a development services guy. I mean, because we're doing these kind of in-house, yes, it does limit the number of properties we can do at one time, but uh, I'm not really coming out of cash, out of pocket a whole lot more than I already have. And so I've got a three and a half million dollar uh, project it might be appraising though, by the time I'm done at $4 million or better. And I'm only owing 2.5 on that project mm-hmm. at the end of, of, the, of that deal. And that is fixed usually for uh, five years, maybe seven years. Uh, and that's great. That means I have five or seven years to figure out what I wanna do with this project. Right now though, there's a temptation because again, uh, long-term interest rates are so low. Um, you know, I can borrow Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac money, for fixed for 10 years on a 30 year amortization. And I can borrow that money for three and a quarter, three and a half percent. So having that as a backup plan to then refinance out my local lenders and then let them repurpose that money into the next project is desirable. It is much easier to finance a finished stabilized project than it is to do uh, ground up from scratch. And even even the banks who love us, they still have a lot of requests of us, You know, setting aside some reserves uh, making sure that we've got liquidity available so that if something occurs in our market that we can't lease this product up, that we're not going to run out of cash.
0: What uh, you talked a little bit about the cash flow, and you know, like you said, ordinarily that's going to be ordinary income. Um, what what are you doing to um, to make that not? I mean, how are you reinvesting in that, or what are your favorite ways to use that to to not have to capture that as ordinary income and be able to reinvest it in that site or or whichever. Well, I think one thing that a newer investor may not realize that
2: was apparent for us really um, with the 2017 tax act, um, it was really written to help uh, real estate investors um, and people with, with large real estate holdings. Uh, there will be a time when we're going to have to pay more in taxes, but with that that new tax act, um, you know, we're seeing a tremendous amount of depreciation or able to capture a tremendous amount of depreciation on these larger projects. So, we are, we are, we have not paid any taxes and I'm not saying that is um, an endorsement one way or the other. I mean, I'm, I'm an American. I, I believe that, you know, we, we require taxes to make the world go round. But uh, the, the money that I'm making in the construction business has been almost completely offset by the depreciation and the mm. paper losses, as you will, if you will, off of the real estate side. And that's the other thing is um, I've got to factor in it when I'm getting these unsolicited offers to buy some of our newer buildings because they are attractive and they do look good and they're in the path of growth and, and they're easy to for somebody to look at and go, hey, this is large enough that I, I can buy it and make it make sense for our portfolio. Um, if I don't have the offsetting rental investment properties, I have to figure out how to start paying taxes because I haven't been paying and been required to pay a lot of taxes. So some of the income that's coming in um, Uh, we are, while it is ordinary income, the depreciation of the properties that we have have been offsetting that. And the other thing is because we're continually adding to our portfolio, I'm getting that pipeline of Mm -hmm. products that are going to continue to create that depreciation or that carry forward loss. So when I get that cash and and, um, uh, a lot of that cash has been going to pay for land that we'll be developing in 2022, 2023, 2024, Um, that cash has also been going toward paying down and i don't want to call it nuisance debt but you know you get to a point where you've got a property that you only owe $45,000 on and you know at that point you're paying mostly principal so it's not that you know you're saving a whole lot of money and interest by paying off that debt but it's still one more loan one more finance piece one more check you got to mail each month so when our account has got you know 50 60 70 grand of cash surplus sitting there you know, some of it goes into reserves and then some of it, you look at kind of all the things you have sitting around, you go, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to wipe out that debt. And it's, you know, it's the snowball or the debt roll up or whatever somebody might want to call it. Um, And then, you know, I'm still a capitalist. So at the end of the year, it's kind of fun to write myself and my partner a check. And it's a small check. It's not, it's, I mean, it's, it's it's a big check in comparison to where I was 25 years ago, but writing ourselves a check to put toward Whatever we want to do as as owners and entrepreneurs and risk takers, but um, you know the at this part of our career and at this part of our economy. And I may be wrong. I can't. I've never been able to time the economy. But for us, we still enjoy building and we still enjoy the development process. And it's not something that defines us as the only thing we ever see ourselves doing. But right now, it feels very normal to to be acquiring uh, thoughtfully, consciously, um, carefully and responsibly uh, debt and assets to go with that debt.
1: You mentioned um, depreciation, are you guys doing like cost segregation or just depreciating it over the natural like 27 year cycle?
2: Well, I think that was one thing that came up is, um, you know, we are depreciating, especially that first year, a lot of things that normally would have been amortized over a number of years. And it's all above board, it's all uh, out there. But what it's done is it's given us the ability to, again, um if i have a three hundred thousand dollars tax bill coming from my day-to-day operations um uh, on one end and i've got depreciation that's wiping out you know uh, the bulk of that you know we're going to let our accountant tell us what he wants us to do because i would rather keep those dollars and redeploy them into the next project um you know we have and also too i mean over the years uh we have saved money we do have liquidity we um you know while well, our, our portfolio is only probably 20 or 30 percent in the stock market you know whether the stock market goes up or down there's still some liquidity there that if we really needed cash we could go grab it more importantly though what that liquidity does it gives us the ability to borrow against it or to collateralize that so i don't have to sell anything but if i need to go capture a million dollars to acquire something real quick i can pull out that money and i'm borrowing that money from myself but i'm borrowing it at 2.2 percent um, so we just bought a, a, a church here in Wilmington to redevelop. And um, that's exactly how we purchased it. They needed to sell it quickly. Um, it was something where we could go in on a Friday and close the next Friday. And it worked for everybody, but the only way I was to get, there was no bank that was gonna give me that kind of money. And for, even for me, and they were yeah. gonna give it to me in three or four days, but I could quickly uh, wire the money to myself, uh, grab that, not have to sell anything and be able to, to, to make that project happen.
1: So when you do that and you're borrowing it from your uh, market account, are you legitimately borrowing it or are you uh, withdrawing it and paying capital gains on that? Or how are you doing no, that yes. I, I,
2: I, Yeah, I'm not selling anything. So what I'm doing typically is it's a, it's a line of credit. It's it's a, a security-based line of credit that's basically um, kind of like on margin, if you will, mm-hmm. but it's, or a HELOC. I mean, it, it acts very much like a HELOC except with a lot more zeros. So what I'm able to do is if if needed, I am basically, and because um, uh, because it's secured uh, money, I'm not paying you know six percent, eight percent, ten percent. I'm I'm paying basically um, what somebody might get for a money market account. Um, I, again, I I'm trying to go from memory, but I, I think uh, the the small loan that we lent ourselves for you know it's short term money. I'm not I'm not using this. I'm, I'm not paying interest only. I'm using this money just for a window of time to. Um, control the assets secure the asset and then figure out how to monetize that with more traditional lending sources but I, I think I'm paying 2.1 percent 2.2 percent on that money so it's it's not um, you know uh, borrowing a million dollars and paying two grand a month for that million dollars for the for the four or five months that you need it isn't really um, again in our situation it's a good use of, of that capital and and it keeps me from having to have ready cash sitting on the sidelines earning you know 0.2 percent waiting for something to happen. So, so it's kind of the best of both worlds in our case.
1: I love that. Is that a specific um, bank or platform that you use that you can do that? Cause I've heard of one that does a M one finance, but I think there are more. Um,
2: I think, I think all, I mean, our, our brokerage company is with Raymond James. Um, and I think all companies will do that. I mean, I think all larger brokerage houses will do that. We have a lot of high net worth clients that we build homes for. And while they could certainly pay cash for their homes, um, they're using their, credit, um, their security securities based line of credit, uh, we can think of it like a HELOC, but a lot, that line of credit, they're paying for their house that way. And then at the end of that job, they're refinancing that house at the, at the lower interest rate To um, when it's all said and done. We're not dealing with construction loans. We're not dealing with appraisers. We're not dealing with a lot of the requirements that normally would be in place. What they're doing is going, hey, this is my money. I just don't wanna sell my stuff because I don't wanna pay the, the capital gains. I don't want to um, have to do the paperwork. And, the cost of funds is so low that i can justify that if the cost of funds was 12 percent, then i probably would sell the money or sell something but um in this case um again even if the stock market you know moves dramatically one way or the other i'm a long-term hold guy you know i don't need that money for another you know one two three decades so there's no need for me to sell anything right now
1: no i love that because a lot of people in the real estate space when they need cash like that quickly they tend to go to private lenders, hard money lenders, and they're paying eight to 12, sometimes 15% for money when they could put it to work in an account and then borrow against their own securities in the market.
2: Right. And I'm not, I mean, certainly when we started out, a lot of the things we were doing, it was hobbling together the money wherever you could. I mean, it took decades to have the liquidity and the reserves, but it also came from, again, like a personal trainer, you know, just do a little bit each each year, each time. And so, uh, I, I give credit to one of my bankers in 2006. He said, I mean, Dave, on paper, you have unbelievable equity. You have all these properties, you have all these assets, you have these buildings, you have these apartments or, or these duplexes, rather, you have no cash. And I I can tell you, I sat there and I said, like, well, what do I need cash for? I mean, I, that was that came out of my mouth. Uh, it was just two short years later that everybody needed cash, uh, including myself, but at least I had... Um, over that time from 2006 to 2008, when I got some cash, when something sold, you know, I wouldn't take that 20 grand and dump it into the next property. I took 10 grand and dumped it into the next property and took 10 grand and put it in in an S&P 500 index fund. Mm. And so fortunately, um, even the very best and smartest business owner is, running, is will run out of business when he runs out of cash. And I've seen some terribly run businesses. I mean, I've seen some restaurant owners where I'm like, how in the world are you still in business? Well, they still have cash. And I think uh, it was made very apparent to me in late 2008 and early 2009 really how valuable cash was because uh, I had free and clear properties where I couldn't borrow against them. And that was the mistake that I had. I don't know that that happens again in the future the same way, but I had free and clear properties that I thought I had done everything right. and then when I went to go borrow50,000 dollars against a 150,000 property, there were no takers. The takers were the guys who were saying, "Sure, Dave, I'll lend you hard money. The rate's 12 percent, and I need two points up front. So if you want me to lend you50,000 dollars, you know I need, you know basically, uh, you know, I'll keep here, here's 40 you owe me 50 back. Oh, and by the way, it's, it's um it's $600 a month interest or wh- whatever the math was. Uh, I couldn't even borrow for myself. Well, again, not that uh, another recession couldn't harm the stock market, but if I'm not selling anything in that line, that line of credit is, again, let's say in round math, it's, it's 50% of whatever my asset value is, Then at least I can access some cash. Hmm.
1: What advice do you have for people who have, you know, Like for example for me i've got a portfolio of older rentals that we've done some rehab maintenance like both of you said is kind of a killer what's your advice for transitioning into the build to rent model like what are some of the key lessons and you've obviously shared a ton what are some of those learnings in the beginning that would be helpful to someone who's interested in building to rent themselves
2: yeah i think we bring up two points i think one of the things i struggled most with was you know, what did I want to be when I grew up? Because I was a hoarder of housing. And some of the homes got to the point where they didn't make any sense, I mean, to, to be rentals. Uh, I have a house that rents for 1250 a month. But if I put it on the market right now, it's worth $250,000. Well, if we go back to our 1% rule, that means I should be earning $2,500 a month, and it's not going to earn that. So, you know, getting comfortable with selling is hard, was hard for me. Uh, because again, I wasn't living off of these properties and selling that property meant having to deviate from something I had trained myself for two decades to do, which was acquisition, acquire, 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 protect, acquire, pay down, pay down debt. I mean, that's the routine every Sunday when I do my books. So transitioning to new construction, especially multifamily, I think what I had to get my head around was, I will probably pay more to do this than I would if I bought it from somebody else. But I'm willing to do that because my strategy is a buy and hold And I'm willing to pay a little bit more now so I'm not nickel and diming myself or bemoaning ownership at year seven, eight, or nine when things start really breaking or getting hard. I also think that um, one of the things that's been very successful for us is we are building outside the box. Now, we're not building far outside the box, but when you look at geography and you look at demographics, we're trying to predict where we think people will move to. And so we're trying to find a place that isn't so terrible that we'll never see appreciation or so... Uh, out of the way that I'm I'm years from seeing that growth. So instead, we're buying right on the edge of that transition, just over the street. Yep. But we're being very particular. We're being particular and we're putting ourselves in the shoes of our consumer, not in the shoes of 50-year-old Dave who has a nice house and a nice car and a nice bank account, but 25-year-old Dave who has to sit there and go, okay, if all hell broke loose, would I live here? And if the answer was no, the answer was no. Uh, no, we're not going to move forward. So if I wasn't willing to live there or my Audience, the one that I'm trying to target to to be my future client, if if they aren't willing to live at this location or in this product at any price or or at a reasonable price, then then the, that was a real quick way to do the gut check to see whether we would go forward or not. But building new, I think one of the things that we really benefited from one of my one of my favorite and most um, my bat, my master's degree, if you will, of real estate was um, you know being undercapitalized. I had to leverage what I had. You know, when you take an assessment of all your tools in your toolbox, you know, when you're when every problem is when your only tool is a hammer and every problem looks like a nail, kind of analogy. But what worked really well was I hooked up with some guys, and it was it really was kind of a dream team of guys who, you know, they were all about my age, a little bit older, maybe a little bit younger, but one was an attorney, a real estate attorney, one was an architect, one was a realtor, one was a CPA. You know, I had a team of guys who all could put in something into the project. You know, one knew how to manage property really well. And so leveraging those things, you show up to a bank, You know, no, did I really want 16% ownership interest in a project? I mean, at the time, 16% was way better than 0%. It was 16 times better. But today, would I do 16% ownership of things? Well, no, I wouldn't. But at the time I was willing to take a much smaller ownership interest as long as I was with a team of guys who had just as much to lose, but also just as much to contribute. And so with that, um, we were able to buy some properties and some projects because it was really easy to pass the hat around. If you needed to collect 20 grand, well, you know, six guys or five guys could all find four grand or you know, $3,200, $3, but finding 20 grand at the time, might, it might as well have been $10 million. 20 grand just wasn't something I had laying around but i also knew how to do the construction i knew how to get through the permitting department i I had skills i could contribute and that was really where you saw some great returns but back to to new construction certainly it helps that i had the knowledge but i think the first thing i would do is find somebody who knows that they are building houses or building remodeling one at a time but isn't sure how to make the jump from hey i i know construction but I'm not making any money here. I mean, I'm making a salary and I'm getting paid, but I'm not creating any wealth. And again, back to my sacrifice now for future gains later line, I think if I am somebody who understands real estate, knows how to look for the deal, knows how to put the deal together. My first couple projects though, even though I I, I don't like, again, today I don't like giving up ownership or having partners that I don't know that well, but I think if I can find somebody who understand who is small enough and needs my help i can add value to their side of the deal and they can add value to my side of the deal then i'm going to do a couple of those and you know my sons are now uh, in college um, you know they're, they're high school in college and it's interesting to watch you know every every father's worst mistake is when to relive his life through his children and um as i'm looking at my kids and how knowledgeable they are and their access to information and how quickly they can aggregate bunch of Zillow listings and and determine which one makes the most sense or take 20 Zillow listings and tell me the three they want to look at. Um, That's impressive. And if I were to do this over again, I probably wouldn't have necessarily worried about becoming a general contractor. I probably would have focused more on creating some strategic partnerships because my highest and best use really is locating the deal, figuring out how to monetize it, understanding who our demographic is, navigating the rezoning process, navigating the municipal process, building relationships with my elected officials, building relationships with the, with the, the uh, stakeholders in a community. Well, not everybody's going to embrace what I do. No one is going to sit around and go, well, what this guy has done has been bad for our community. I mean, lots of people don't want any growth, but everybody has to live in a house. So I get to have kind of, uh, you can't argue with me that you don't want growth. You need growth. You need housing. Where do you want it? Let me help you put it there. Let me tell you what's going to work. So I think um, the strategic partnership piece—at least—that's the line I'm giving my my 19-year-old and my 17-year-old, uh, who both are, are real estate investors, and um, both of which are you know benefiting from the guidance of others and the mistakes of others. Uh, I've explained to both of my children that they could never live long enough to make the number of mistakes I've made. So go ahead and pay attention, because my favorite thing to tell them is "I told you so," and uh, they they think it's funny, but I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> what do you
1: do like uh one key point you bring up is building relationships with the stakeholders and you know zoning and government locally what have you done to help build those relationships and what advice do you have for other people who maybe haven't done any of that relationship building yet
2: well i don't know that everybody's gonna like you or like not everybody likes me or necessarily agrees with what i'm doing um but i think one thing they can't argue is my commitment to my community. I am very involved and I sit on boards and I'm willing to volunteer and I give my time mm. and I'm much more quick to, I mean, I can write anybody a check for a couple hundred bucks for your, for, your, for, for your nonprofit or for your organization. But if I'm willing to serve on your board or I'm willing to contribute time to my community as the other people in that room, not only is there camaraderie there, but there's an understanding that, look, it's real easy to write a check. And there's guys in our town who do that and they do it well. But if you get that guy in a room and you take his knowledge and that knowledge gets trickled down to the rest of the community, the elected officials and the other people who are in the same position, myself included, those people, I have a high, high respect and regard for. And so when I, you know, when I served on our downtown board or our Chamber of Commerce or our Homeowners Association, I mean, trust me when I tell you, it's a whole lot easier to not do that. It is so much easier to sit on the couch and do nothing than to serve on a board, that why would anyone serve on a board in the first place? But the relationships I've been able to build, and my role as president of this or chairman of this, and it's it's only for one or two years. I'm not somebody. I believe in term limits. So, but more importantly, when I'm on those boards, I'm cultivating the next generation. Mm. Uh, nothing depresses me more than being in a PMS meeting, and a PMS meeting is pale, male, and stale. It's where I'm in a room with you know twelve guys who are all. you know they're they're all in their 60s and 70s and there's no people of color there's no women in the room and these guys are living in a vacuum and i roll in and i if i can't move that needle or change that culture i'm going to move out really quickly and i'm not going to be able to add value to that space but when you transition and translate that um the, the contributions to the community the willingness to reinvest in your own community to, to croak for your own pond, if you will, to, to use our, our mayor's line. It's a sorry frog that doesn't croak for his own pond. Um, when I then show up in front of a planning commission meeting, I have one tonight. or when I show up in front of a council meeting, I may have uh, you know, three or four members on that board that are absolutely against anything that I'm doing or, or just think that, you know, development in general is, is a terrible idea, or at least, you know, developing at a market rate as opposed to something that's uh, that provides more social equity, whatever that may be, they can't excuse or disavow the fact that I am here, I am contributing. I am adding value to a community through either an increase in beautification of a streetscape to increase in tax base. And yes, I will not apologize that that part of that successful project includes me being profitable. Um, so all of those legs of the stool are required for our community. Um, and if I'm willing to do that, uh, it's uh, people are very hard pressed to, to not listen or not uh, go by that. The one thing though, that I think has set our company apart, and it's not necessarily made friends across the board, but certainly within the the people who make decisions in our community, I am willing, because I live here, because I hope one day my children choose maybe to live here as well. I'm not gonna force them into that, but if they, I wanna create a place where I wanna continue living. I don't wanna make a bunch of money in one town and then go, okay, good stuff. I got my dough, pack it up, let's go. We're heading to Naples or we're heading to you know wherever. Um, I think the projects that we do we are thinking about the environment. We are thinking about stormwater. We are thinking about quality of life. We're thinking about things and the places and the people that are going to live there more than somebody else might. And um, that could be a, a liability long-term for us. But again, I, I have a nice living. I, I live well. I have enough. Um, I still you know, want to do things. But I am much more of somebody who gets the thrill out of creating the asset than counting the money.
1: I love it. I love it. Dave, this has been a fantastic episode. Um, really enjoyed having you on man. I think you're the, probably the longest relationship I've ever had with someone in real estate investing, coming back from freshman in college, we met for the first time. Yes, um, I remember
2: that. Yeah, Thank you for I, listening to me. I, you didn't listen to me for the first two years of your venture. I, <laughs> no, I wish I did. Now. So
1: like quick background, cause this is not about me at all, but freshman year, Dave tried to convince me to get into real estate development, building some duplexes downtown Wilmington. I'm like, you're crazy. I want to go do this tech stuff. Anyways, okay. fast How's forward. That out for you? <laughs> I'm finally in the right place. If only I'd listened to you. Well what does he want to say? So. You, I told you so.
2: <laughs> no, I think that um, here's the here's the problem. And, and again, I know that you're going to edit this and, and you're going to yeah, you're going to kind of clean it up. But um, uh, Frank Blake, Senior was the CEO of Home Depot. Uh, Frank Blake Sr. was part of Habitat for Humanity. He worked under the Jimmy Carter administration, uh, a really strong, strong guy. And his son, Frank Blake Jr. was my buddy here who was happening to manage the Home Depot here in Wilmington. And he and I were buddies, we were in the chamber together. So that's how we meet. I meet Frank Blake Jr. And I don't know a whole lot about Home Depot. I like Home Depot and um, you know, Tony Stewart was the race car driver and that's the extent of Home Depot that I knew. But Home Depot was here in town And uh, his dad came to speak to the chamber and his dad flew in and he was the CEO at the time and uh, we were kind of hanging out and and having dinner and we're talking. And Mr. Blake is telling this great story. And he's saying, Dave, you know, we're headquartered in in Atlanta and everything in Atlanta is a big deal. You know, Home Depot is Atlanta and UPS is Atlanta and Coca Cola is Atlanta. And so we're, we're really kind of creating this new facility in Atlanta and we're, we wanted to have, you know, the mayor is there and we, we wanna have, you know, the people of Atlanta embracing Atlanta, you know, Team Atlanta, which I'm totally on board with. I, I get it, man, I, I love it. And I said, well, who else? And he says, well, we had, you know, Mr. Kathy uh, S. Kathy, the um the uh, founder of Chick Fil A, which of course is you know, is Atlanta, and so we invite all of our dignitaries and all of our people uh, from Coke and you know from UPS, and as we're opening up this facility, yeah, you know, we're just letting them say a couple words, and and really the the script is essentially something along the lines of you know. You know, it's the red, white, and blue of of Atlanta is, you know, uh, uh, and here it's good that Home Depot is part of the community and just kind of this raw, raw thing is they kind of cut the ribbon and have this press release. And really all they wanted Mr. Uh, Mr. Kathy to say was basically, you know, Chick-fil-A is great just like Home Depot is and Home Depot is great just like Chick-fil-A and Mr. Kathy gets up and he speaks for like 20 minutes about how good their chicken sandwiches are. And he doesn't say Home Depot once, he doesn't say Atlanta once, he never mentions Coca-Cola. He just talks about how good Chick-fil-A is and how good their chicken sandwiches are. And and that's his presentation. And then they kind of get him off the stage and and I'm mortified for him. I'm like, you've got this big event, you've got all these senators and dignitaries there. I mean, what did you do? And he goes, Dave, what am I supposed to do? Of course he talks he doesn't know anything else. He yeah. only knows the chicken sandwich. And damn, if that's not a good chicken sandwich, <laughs> he's right. And I think that's I'm no I'm no Chick-fil-A guy, I'm no Coca Cola, but in my world I only know what I know. So if you ask a guy like me what you should do, I only got one thing for you, and it's duplexes on the north side of downtown as a freshman who if you had built two or three, you would probably be doing really, really well right now. Yeah, but you're you're right. doing already well. You're already doing well, and I'm very proud of you and I'm very excited for you and, and I'm And I'm glad that we stay in touch because I think that, um, you know, the, the skills and the resources you have are very different than what I have. And your ability to embrace technology and leverage technology in a way that I just still haven't figured out. I mean, the fact that we're having a Zoom call is fascinating to me i'm not even sure how i got on i had to push the buttons and <laughs> click on some things and you never know if i'm getting ready to download nigerian prince account information so I out. But, but i think more importantly is there is a balance between the knowledge that a guy like me has and his willingness to share knowledge with with guys like you because there's plenty of room for everybody and everybody i know needs some place to live and i feel very proud and very, uh, I take it very responsibly that I should be able to provide housing for people, especially those of which that are my neighbors.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we really appreciate um, you hopping on here and sharing your knowledge with our guests. Where can people follow you along and learn more about PBC?
2: If you yeah, want- Yeah, um, <laughs> no, I mean, uh, with a name like Dave Spitrino, it's pretty easy mm-hmm. to find me. Uh, I'm pretty much the only one around, but I have an Instagram page that I usually put cool house pictures on and then, yeah. kids, and then pictures of my kid. And then, you know, but uh, you know, that's a, that's a one or two times a month post. Uh, what's, what I'm willing to do and what a lot of people have done is a lot of people just email me at davespatrino@gmail.com, at gmail.com or they get me through my our website, pbcdesignbuild.com. And, and they hit me up. And, and again, I, I'm glad to talk to anyone. Uh, I'll get on the phone with you I have looked at more pro formas for people and kind of shaken them down to go, listen, let me help you. This is amazing. You've spent 300 hours creating this pro forma. Let me tell you what your math is and, and, and getting people close. You are never going to be perfect in real estate. You can be great. You can be excellent. You can be extremely talented. You can be amazing, but you're not going to be perfect in real estate. And if you can get close enough, and, and you and you think about it, there's really only two mistakes in real estate. There's the deals that you didn't do that you should have done. And then there's deals that you did that you shouldn't have done. As long as you can <laughs> fall on the side that you're comfortable with, you're going to be okay. Um, and sometimes saying no allows you to say yes to something else. And I think that even though hmm. I'm frustrated that it took me so long to acquire those first couple of properties, it allowed me to make sure that I didn't make major uh, and, and we see this. We see this with our peers. They try to get into real estate. They get a setback. They get overly aggressive. They get overconfident, and they run out of cash. And they go, you know what? I don't want to be a landlord. And and they do something else. And and if you're going to do this, you're going to have to go all in. And if patience isn't a thing for you, and delayed gratification isn't a thing for you, then this probably isn't a thing for you. And but if if you you'll be amazed how fast 10 years goes by, let alone 20. And that is fascinating to me because the net worth increase is substantial. Um, you know, what was 10 grand of net worth in year one becomes 10 million really freaking fast. And while it seems painful because it's not a straight line, um, you know, we are probably more conservative in our valuation today than we would have been years ago, but still it is, uh, it is leaps and bounds beyond what I've ever imagined. I mean, I moved to Wilmington hoping to make 10 grand a month and I'd been thrilled with that factor in inflation, anything else. And I have far exceeded my goals.
1: That's awesome, man. we appreciate it. Um, Yeah, we'll great amount of
0: energy. Thank you, Dave.
1: Yeah, good luck editing.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Good luck. uh, Anytime, guys, anytime. And uh, I I wish you the best. Send me a link to everything and let me know how I can support you guys. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Thanks, Dave. We appreciate it. See See you man. Thanks, guys.
0: Thanks for joining us for another episode of Who Knows Real Estate. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and check out our show notes for the guest contact info as well as ours. Be sure to look for our next episode. Thanks.